Hi, and welcome back to Murder Minded. So, I know last week's episode was kind of a doozy, um, and I tried to make the second half about Richard a little more, I don't want to say bearable, but a little bit lighter, because I think it kind of takes away some of the gravity of the situation when the tone you're using is a little more humorous and light, um, and that's why I, you know, try and write and do some jokes and stuff in there, so... People don't have nightmares. Um, I myself didn't, thank God, because I spent so much time researching this man. I honestly, other than like a few pictures on like articles I read, did not make it a point to extensively look at Google images because I knew that I would have nightmares. And I don't know if any of you guys did, but I really hope that if you did, I did warn you. His teeth are scary. Hopefully that you guys didn't have nightmares because of it. But you did it at your own discretion and your own risk. But he's gone and we don't right now have any night stalkers to worry about. Truly knock on wood. I wanted to discuss another unsolved DC homicide for today's episode that I came across on the list on DC Metropolitan Police's website. I came across Dana Chisholm's murder from 1995 and wanted to share her story. Dana was born in York County, South Carolina in August of 1969 to her parents, Johnny and Joe Gary, loved Chisholm. She was the oldest of three siblings. She had one younger brother named Trevor and a younger sister named Lacey. Unfortunately, there isn't much about her early life, but we do know that Dana was incredibly smart and hardworking and loved to dance and cheerlead. Her family also says that she read anything she could get her hands on. She also did get into drugs as a teenager and did run away from home, but as she got older, she cleaned up and this troubled era of her life ended. A year before she died, she threw her parents a surprise 25th wedding anniversary party, and at this party, she thanked them for sticking by her during the tough times of her life. Dina just sounded like a kind, friendly, thankful, and just generally pleasant person to be around. As a friend and eventually later as a co-worker. After graduating King's Business College in Charlotte in 1993, Dana would move to Washington, D.C. with dreams of becoming a pro singer. Those who knew her said she had an incredible voice and her voice was even compared to that of Whitney Houston. Now, if you're trying to break into the singing business, I can only imagine that that is like, that's like the top tier compliment because Whitney Houston was incredible. So the fact that someone who is a young adult trying to make it in the music industry and be a professional singer is being told she sounds like Whitney is incredible. Truly amazing and speaks volumes to Dana's talent. Unfortunately, DC is not ripe with singing jobs. So Dana had to pick up a nine to five to support herself while trying to achieve her dream. Dana found a job at the Hudson Institute, which is a conservative think tank, as a secretary. Her boss, Michael Horowitz, told the Washington Post, quote, She was a bright young woman with such intelligence and a thousand-watt smile. At the same time, I had a sense that there was some troublesome aspect to her life, end quote. Dana was often late to her job and on some occasions absent completely and seemed distracted while she was at work. She was well-liked by her co-workers, and Minimal had a bad thing to say about her. Dana lived on Argyle Terrace Northwest in the vicinity of Rock Creek Park in a basement apartment. Some of her neighbors included the former FBI Director William Sessions and Senator Jay Rockefeller, 
So this was a pretty affluent neighborhood at the time. Unfortunately, even though it was considered a safe neighborhood, Dana's life would be lost less than two years after moving to D.C. On the night of February 24th, a Friday, around 7 p.m., Dana told a co-worker she was not feeling well and that she would be staying in that weekend, as she normally went out clubbing every Saturday, and that she might not be coming into work on Monday. Her co-worker would call her both on Saturday and Sunday and did not reach Dana, and it went to voicemail. In the early morning hours of February 27, 1995, Dana's parents received a phone call from Lieutenant Lewis Douglas with the Metropolitan Police Department, and he was calling in regards to their daughter. He informed Dana's parents that she was arrested for prostitution at the Omni Hotel and figured it was best to let them know and that Dana sat locked up. The man identifying as Lieutenant Douglas spoke quickly and with bated breath something that made Dana's father, Johnny, pause and gave him doubts that the person who had called was actually a police officer. Lieutenant Douglas had given Dana's parents a phone number to reach out to in case they needed, but, following arraignment, told them that Dana would call them the following day. Johnny called the number that they had been given, but the man on the other end of the line sounded much different than the man he had spoken to earlier that morning. It was on this call that the Chisholm's learned the man who had called was pretending to be a Metropolitan Police officer, and the real Lieutenant Douglas had never spoken to them and had no idea what they were talking about. There was also zero record of Dana having been arrested for prostitution, but a few weeks earlier, Lieutenant Douglas did respond to a call of a stolen TV at Dana's apartment, but had not heard from her since. So at that point in time, that was the only contact that Lieutenant Douglas and Dana had was her reporting a stolen TV. Dana's parents got the sense that something had happened to their daughter, so they asked Lieutenant Douglas to check on her. He, went, he called Dana's workplace and a few friends, but no one had heard from her. Lieutenant Douglas went by Dana's apartment and left a business card with his information on it, as well as a note saying, I'll be back, a la Arnold Schwarzenegger. And after receiving no answer on the door, he left the note and called her repeatedly and received no response. Dana's parents had last spoken to her on February 16th after her father called her at work to thank her for a Valentine's Day card she had sent her parents with money. At around 6 p.m. on the 27th, Dana's co-workers had reached out to her landlady, Cynthia Ford, since Dana had not shown up to work that day and they hadn't heard anything from her regarding her absence. Dana had made that comment to her coworker that past Friday that she might not be into work, but they never got a phone call from her that morning confirming. They asked Cynthia to check Dana's apartment to see if she was there. Cynthia was the one who discovered Dana's naked body in the hallway outside of her bedroom. The cops came to the apartment on Argyle Terrace at 7 p.m., and later the medical examiner had determined Dana had been dead for an estimated 24 hours before she was discovered, and that she had been strangled with a cord which remained around her neck when the body was found. Also, during the autopsy, it was discovered that Dana was four weeks pregnant. Investigators determined there was no forced entry into the apartment, no windows or doors were broken in for the perpetrator to gain entry to. Later on TV, a reporter had discovered a spare key in the vicinity of the apartment, 
and it isn't known if this was a spare hidden by Dana that the perpetrator had come across, or if this was a copy given to someone that Dana had trusted and they had dropped and left behind. Investigators also discovered the note and card Lieutenant Douglas had left. So Lieutenant Douglas had left the note and his business card at the front door of the apartment. But when it was found, it had been moved to the back door of the apartment. So it basically sounded like this was kind of a a townhouse situation where there was the a tenant, you know, there was Cynthia Ford and her son that lived on the top floor, and then Dana lived in the basement. So this card had been left on the back, and initially investigators didn't know that that was left by Lieutenant Douglas. So for the beginning part of the investigation, they thought that this was a note left by her killer. None of Dana's neighbors had heard anything out of the ordinary the night of her murder, which, based on the medical examiner's estimate, would have been on the 26th. And no one saw anyone suspicious coming or going that night or leaving early the morning of the 27th. Investigators began to scour Dana's apartment for clues, and it was impossible to tell if the perpetrator intentionally had ransacked her apartment or if it had been that way previously. Despite the ransacked apartment, the police did discover Dana's log of romantic and sexual encounters in her room, along with specific dates and times. The log also contained their phone numbers and workplace references. Among the men listed in the book were married businessmen, quote-unquote club hoppers, and two cops whose names have never been publicly revealed. Dana was involved more socially than investigators thought, and this discovery was a step in the right direction to finding a suspect. Unfortunately, though, none of these men ever became more than a person of interest, and none of them ever became hard-looked-at suspects due to lack of evidence. And out of the blue lead would come shortly thereafter, and a supervisor at the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department would begin to receive a barrage of phone calls from a mysterious unnamed man who would leave voicemails and ask for the supervisor at the time, Sergeant Farish, to call him back. Finally, one day, Sergeant Farish was at his desk when this mystery man called and was told, quote, she died because her lifestyle, end quote. The mystery man told Sergeant Farish about Dana's frequenting nightclubs, meeting men, entertaining multiple men at the same time. This man hinted that he wanted Sergeant Farish to publicly talk about Dana's private life and seemed to blame Dana for her own death. These calls would continue for a while, and the caller was especially irked when Sergeant Farish said in the Washington Post that Dana was, quote, an all-American, naive woman who was taken advantage by her killer-slash-killers, end quote. The mystery man told Sergeant Farish that he wanted to meet, to talk more about Dana's murder, and Farish agreed to meet. On the day of the planned meetup, the mysterious man never showed, and phone calls to Sergeant Farish and the police department stopped completely. It has never been confirmed that this mystery caller was the same person who called Dana's parents on February 27th, telling them that Dana had been arrested for prostitution, but there was confirmation that the caller's voice and the speech patterns had lined up on both calls. Prior to her death, Dana had told her parents that she had something big to tell them, 
and was planning to come home to tell them. It's speculated that this was regarding her pregnancy, and she had already told some of her friends and co-workers about the news as well, which she did not feel over the moon about. On a separate note, strangulation is an intensely personal way of killing someone. So the theories that are the killer was someone who Dana knew intimately. Theories range from the father of Dana's child, who was never publicly named, or a jealous lover from the detailed log she'd kept. Other theories do include a police officer, but that was something that had just floated around on Reddit. Strangling someone is an ultimate form of power and control. The person who is doing the strangling ultimately holds the other person's life in their hands, literally and figuratively, and controls their breathing with an increased amount of pressure. So unfortunately, um, TV and movies have sort of skewed our view on strangulation, and strangling someone does not kill them instantly. It takes up to five minutes to kill someone. So it really takes a sick individual to commit strangulation and watch someone suffer for minutes at a time, struggling with the pressure on their throat. The amount of anger that a person has to have to decide to strangle someone rather than shoot a victim truly has to be off the charts. You're ultimately watching someone suffer under you with, with your hands. Also, one other thing, there has never been confirmation that Dana was a sex worker, but even if she was, or honestly, any other case for that matter, does not ever deserve to die in such an awful way like strangulation. In true crime cases, sex workers reported missing to police never seem to be looked at or taken seriously based on their professions because police, police officers often consider them disposable and police, unfortunately, often have little sympathy for sex workers. Unfortunately, this case has gone cold, and there have been no updates since Dana's brutal murder. Sergeant Farish did give an interview, and there was a story in the Washington Post in 2011, but that's been it. There's been absolutely nothing since. Her family is still waiting for answers and justice for their daughter, who was just 25 at the time of her death. Metro police officers are still investigating her death to this day. If you have any information, please call the Metro PD Synchronized Ops Command Center at 202-724-9099. And now it's time for Murder in a Minute. So I saw this on Twitter and I was, I actually was floored because, so OJ Simpson gave his two cents on the Alex Murdoch trial on Twitter in a three-minute video, which I watched the entirety of because I wanted to see what he had to say. And basically, he said that Alex was a habitual liar, which homeboy is a massive liar. Like, I think even on the stand, multiple times, like at least six or seven times while being questioned, he lied. And he shouldn't have gotten on the stand, which I hate that I agree with. And he said that he was trying to relate to one or two of the jurors, trying to show them that he was, quote, and this is OJ's words, a good old boy. And OJ didn't think he succeeded in doing this, which I don't think he did either. He thinks it's more likely. So he said he thinks it's more likely or most likely that Alex did it, but still thinks there's reasonable doubt, which I... 
I agree with, unfortunately. Again. He does go... He does think that Alex will go... I hate that... So, he his, his actual name is Richard Alex. But for some reason, he's called Alec. And I couldn't figure out why people were consistently saying that. And I had a roommate from South Carolina a couple years ago. And I had asked her about it. Like we were talking and she said, Alec, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, what? I say Alex. I don't know why they say Alec. I don't know, but everybody calls him that. I don't get it. I don't know. His new, his real name isn't actually Alec or Alex, but besides the point. So OJ does think that um, <laughs> Alex will go to jail for the money crimes because he stole he stole a boatload of money, and I mean he stole ultimately to the money from the kids of the housekeeper that died on his property, which OJ thinks they should look into as well. Um, and it that's still a very suspicious death too. Um, they do cover that if you watch the Murdaugh series on Netflix, which was very good. Very short, but very good. Um, because that's very suspicious that she, like, fell, I think she fell backwards on the stairs and they said it was because of the dogs that did it. I don't know. It just seems very suspicious. But they did re-exhume her body um, to kind of check for injuries, but also just just to re-examine it, just to, because of him being arrested for the, the mur- for the murders of um, Maggie and uh, Paul Paul, as he called them, and um, the financial crimes. So they figured, they're like, this was kind of sus when it happened, so let's bring it back up again, which her family does deserve answers, bottom line, um, because it was ruled as a natural death, but I don't think it was. Because she fell down the stairs, and when Maggie called 911, she said there was blood all over so I don't think it was natural but I'm not qualified to tell you that but um so bottom line OJ said that he thinks that Murdoch will beat this case unfortunately the more information I learned about this case I had that gut feeling too and I hate to actually say that I am with OJ on this so I do think at some point Alex will go to jail. I just think it's for the financial crimes. I just think that they're like OJ said, there is reasonable doubt. I think the phone logs and the records put him at the scene, but there's still I think it's still kind of fuzzy. And I think the fact that him that Maggie and Paul were killed with two different guns. Unless, I don't know. I do think that there is 100% reasonable doubt. You know what? I mean, who knows? We might get a book down the line from Alex called If I Did It, which could be co-written with OJ. My really quick two cents. I really just have this feeling that Alex was somehow involved. I don't think he personally did it. I just have this feeling that he hired someone to do it and his reactions on the body cam footage from the cops from that night 
are raw because he saw what the hitmen had done to his wife and child. Granted, there's been no evidence of a hitman either. I just, there's something about me that thinks he's involved, but there's something that's still, I have hesitation believing that he's the one that pulled the trigger that killed his own wife and child. Um, And then there's just the rumors too. And they said that Paul was being, you know, threatened online because of the boating accident and the fact that one of his friends, um, Mallory had died because she, when the boat crashed, she fell off. They didn't find her for a week later. He was immensely intoxicated. Um, but still, I mean, no, I mean, Paul was 22 when this happened. So it just, I mean, it's, it's very sad all around, um, regardless of whether or not it was Alex or not. Um, it is just very sad. Like this is his wife of, I don't know how long, but, and his child. So he has right now, he's, it's just him and, uh, him and Buster. And the red hair gene in that family is so strong. So strong. I honestly also too, just feel like this guy kind of pushes the limits of what he can get away with because of the notoriety of his family in South Carolina. Um, just since he got away with so much for so long before, And this potentially was one of the things that he wanted to push the limit with. Then again, I don't know, as of today, which is March 2nd, um, the jury has just started deliberating, which I don't know. I have a feeling the the verdict's going to come back pretty soon. Um, And normally that I found that that is... If they come back soon, it's I think it's pretty indicative that it's a guilty verdict. But then again, it differs from trial to trial and the amount of evidence they presented. So I'm very curious to see how this goes. Definitely we'll keep an eye on that because the whole thing is just sad. But um, I just think that he was involved. I just think this man had something to do with it. And... That's my time. So thank you guys again for listening, and I'll see you next week. So until then, stay murder-minded. Bye.